0: Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, verse 7, chapters 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, "'Teacher,' he replied, "'Speak. "'A certain creditor has two debtors. "'One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. "'When they could not pay, "'he canceled the debts for both of them. "'Now which of them will love him more?' "'Simon answered, "'I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt.' "'And Jesus said to him, "'You have judged rightly.' "'Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Hence, she has shown great love, but the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who has forgiven sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: To God. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we pray that you would um, take us into that room, allow us to sit at the table to observe the conversation and the actions among you and the Pharisee and the woman. Help us to imagine what it felt like to all concerned and then help us to direct our gaze inward into our own hearts and imagine what it felt for us and what it means for us today help us to take just a few moments to to allow this scripture to come alive in our hearts speak to us lord your servants are listening amen you know, we eat at a lot of tables um, and you can kind of, you can make your own list. Uh, I've, I've kind of put a few of them together as I think about the tables where we eat in our family uh, lives. Uh, one is, is an ancient tradition called the dining room table. Uh, for, for a lot of families, it's become almost extinct. In fact, there are homes being built today that don't have dining rooms. Because so many people don't eat in their dining rooms anymore, but for those of you who have a dining room table, uh, and and granted, not everybody is the same, so we have all kinds of exceptions. But but a lot of folks, the dining room table is sort of a, it's almost like that whole room is a museum, and and you only use it when you have out of town guests. Uh, it's a it's more formal setting that table we. We uh, use our best china. Uh, we bring out the silver uh, maybe once a year, and for many families, we have more than one set of silver because over the years, maybe you've inherited some from uh, from family members who have passed on, or or perhaps you received uh, uh, silver uh, when uh, when you were married. Uh, but for a lot of folks, uh, they don't use their silver in their china much anymore. Uh, at that dining room table, you'll often use more than one fork in a given meal, one for the salad, one for the main course, one for the dessert. There might be multiple spoons, one that you would use for the soup, or uh, maybe one for the tea. And, you know, so you, you might have as many as 10 uh, pieces of silver in front of your plate. There around the dining room table is more uh, polite conversation, maybe more formal. And it's funny how everybody arrives at the same time and everyone leaves at the same time from the dining room table. It's a place of somber faces and frowns. Then there is the kitchen table. The kitchen table has become the everyday table for a lot of families, It's where most of us eat on a day in and day out basis. Often the plates are filled before they ever arrive at the table. It's where most family business gets done where conversations are really the most genuine. This is where you'll find tears and hugs and pushing and shoving. It's where we are family around the kitchen table then there's another table that really doesn't even look like a table. I call it the kitchen counter. It's becoming by default the table of choice for a lot of families. It's where family members sit on stools while they check their electronic devices for emails and texts and often talk to one another at the same counter with an electronic device. Everyone's in a hurry at this, this kitchen counter. Sometimes plates aren't even used. (laughs) This table is filled with breathless sighs and hurried, I gotta go, I gotta go. Very few times around the kitchen counter would the whole family be there at one time. And then of course, I cannot talk about various tables for the family without talking about the picnic table. This is used for periodic uh, gatherings of family and friends. It's where various parts of the meal are brought by, by different folks and they share in this meal. They, some bring the potato salad, other the casserole, and other hot dogs, hamburgers, chips, cookies, you name it. This is the most laid back of all our tables. It's filled with laughter. And lots of stories that are told over and over again. Now, I say all this by way of saying that at different tables, we often have different experiences. But in the time of Jesus, there was only one table. There was no dividing of the formality from the informal and the, and the more serious from the more joyful. Uh, there was only one table in Jesus' day everything took place there. It was often very low to the ground and people who ate around this table actually reclined in order to eat. And they ate from a communal bowl or dish. Um, uh, My... (laughs) My family, we, we, off, we often argue with one another when we go to a Mexican restaurant and there's, a, you know, dip or something. You've heard of double dipping, have you? You know, where you take a bite and you dip right back in again. And depending on who you are in the family, you have a different opinion about whether that's okay or not. Well, apparently double dipping was pretty much uniform in the time of Jesus. The table at that time was truly a communal table, a place where where a lot of things would happen. So to be invited to one's table was truly a compliment, and it was not to be taken lightly. Therefore, when the Pharisee invited Jesus into his house and to eat at his table. It was no small matter. This was very important what the Pharisee was doing. This was not just simply meeting somewhere in public and discussing the events of the day. This was welcoming Jesus into his family. At worst, it meant that he wanted to argue with Jesus trick him into saying something that would cause him to be arrested. Or maybe he thought he could bring this renegade Jesus back into the fold of of the Jewish faith. At best, though, he could have wanted to learn from Jesus, like Nicodemus, you know, to get to know him better, to get to know more about his teachings, maybe even become one of his disciples. We don't know why the Pharisee invited Jesus into his home. The only thing we really can assume is that it was important to him to have Jesus there in any event no matter what his ulterior motive might have been i can pretty much guarantee that he did not expect a woman in the city who was a sinner as as Luke describes her he didn't expect her to barge in to the to the home of this pharisee and to be close at hand at this table. Now, some scholars say, well, the, the table uh, where people would gather in the family was often in almost like a courtyard. And so you'd have an opening rather than a door that you would open and close. And so someone could walk in from, from the street, but it was not something you would do. You would not just normally walk into someone else's house and be anywhere near their communal table. So it was not something that he would expect to have this woman barge in the way that she did. And yet there she was, weeping and, and, uh, and just uh, bathing Jesus' feet with her tears, drying his feet with her hair, bringing out the ointment and, and, uh, and anointing his feet with this, this expensive ointment. She was doing all the things that the Pharisee should have been doing as a proper host. And Jesus even refers to it later on in the text. He he makes it clear that she's done all the things that he should have been doing. And so undoubtedly he must have felt a little bit of guilt, just a little twinge that here this woman may maybe maybe he was planning to do that at some point and she just happened to get there too quickly, but in any event, he would probably feel a little bit squeamish about what she was doing and what he failed to do. But Jesus uses this moment as a, as a teaching moment, as he complains about the woman, perhaps wanting to kind of rush her out of the Place so that he could kind of get his emotions back together again. Jesus uh, decides that he's going to use this as a teaching moment, and he's and he tells a story, a very brief story, to the Pharisee to get his reaction. And he talks about a creditor who has two debtors, and he forgives the debt of both of these debtors. One owes 50 denarii, and the other owes 500 denarii. Now, a denarius was worth about one day's wage. So the one who owed 50 denarii would be owing roughly two months' worth of one's wages. And and the one who owed 500 denarii was owing something like two years' worth of one's salary. Now, you just do the math in your own head what you make for salary, and you kind of think about what's two months' worth. Maybe it's, your, uh, maybe it's the debt that you have on your car. It's your car loan. Uh, that's the one who owes the 50 denarii. The one who owes the 500 denarii, that's like two years' worth of your salary. Not just part of your salary, but all of your salary. Maybe that's your mortgage. Well, imagine if if the one you owed these debts to just forgave them. Well, can you imagine all of a sudden not having to pay off your car loan because it's already paid off or not having to pay off your mortgage because your house is now paid for? Can you imagine what you would feel? Can you imagine the gratitude that you would feel? And, and that's precisely what Jesus was getting this uh, this Pharisee to kind of look at and to think about. And then Jesus asks him, he asks in verse 42, Now which of them will love him more? Which of these debtors will love the creditor more by forgiving this debt? And of course the answer is obvious. In verse 43, the Pharisee says, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. Of course, that's kind of common sense. Of course, we would all say that. Now the thing is, it would be easy to think that this this story of Jesus in the Pharisee's house and the woman coming in and really the Pharisee not kind of wanting to get rid of her, you know, complaining that that Jesus would have any kind of association with her. You would think that well, easily think that maybe the real message of this story is the need to forgive. That the Pharisee needs to forgive this woman just as Jesus was forgiving her. In fact, he says at the end, you know, that your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. You know, it would be easy to think that's the real message. It's not a bad lesson. It's, it's something worth uh, thinking about. But it's really not about that. It's really about teaching the Pharisee that he is the one who needs forgiveness. It, you see, if he had understood his own sin and how much he had been forgiven, then he would have been able to love Jesus all the more, as well as the woman who barged into his home. You see, the the Pharisee's problem was not that he failed to forgive the woman, but that he failed to see that he also was in need of forgiveness. You see, his real sin was not his lack of forgiveness. It was his thinking that he didn't need to be forgiven. His sin, in essence, was arrogance. The Pharisee's lesson is a lesson for all of us today. When Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, when we first learn of him in the Bible, we learn that he's holding the cloaks of those who are stoning Stephen to death. And why were they stoning Stephen? And why was Saul, in essence, affirming what they were doing? They were doing that because they thought they were upholding the faith. They thought they were protecting the faith from someone who was going to take the faith in the wrong direction. Stephen was part of that little band called The Way, those who were following that renegade Jesus. And they felt a a duty to their religion to protect their faith from, from someone who would take them in a wrong direction. Saul, holding the cloaks, did not see his own perversion. He saw Stephen perverting the faith, but he didn't see how his own heart was being perverted. Later when Jesus, uh, or really it was not later, but before that incident, when Jesus confronted those who held the rocks to stone, the woman caught in adultery. Those, those, Guys, and I'm sure they were all men, standing in the circle, holding those, those rocks, ready to do their damage. They undoubtedly thought they were doing the right thing. They were upholding the law. They were doing what God called them to do to protect their community and their faith from the, from the sinfulness of this woman. They, they wanted to protect the sanctity of marriage by showing to the world that this kind of adultery cannot continue. They believed they were upholding the law. They were standing up for what was right, what was moral, and what was just. So Jesus scribbles in the sand and reminds them that they have sinned as well. He who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one they dropped the rocks and they went on their way. Later in Matthew 7, Jesus said, Do not judge so that you may not be judged. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye but do not notice the log in your own eye? In so many words, Jesus was saying lay down your cloaks, lay down your rocks, all those things that you've gathered up in your own self-righteousness and start looking inside your own heart. The one who recognizes his or her own flawed humanity, the one who recognizes his or her need for forgiveness, that is the one who learns to love the most, deeply there's a there's such a thing as being so right that you're wrong I think I've told this story many many times before in early in my ministry uh, uh, I was asked to perform the wedding of a young couple that I wasn't even going to meet until the rehearsal and I struggled with that at that time I I required uh, I've you know premarital counseling several sessions uh, a group of clergy and I had even put together a, a workshop for that purpose. All of that was to, to uh, strengthen ma- marriage, and so I, 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 I just felt I couldn't do it. I, and I, that's what I shared with them, and and uh, and the mother and and father of the of the groom. Oh, they hated me, hated me for many years. It was. Um, it was a hard thing for me to do, but I I felt that I was right, and and even as I look back on it, I, I think I was right, but I was also wrong. And if I had to do it all over again, I'd do it very differently. I can guarantee you that. You know, sometimes in our in our own sense of righteousness, our eyes become clouded, and we fail to see the one that we judge. You see, healing will only occur in our nation and in our community and in our church when we come face to face with our own need for forgiveness. We're we're all in this together. We're we're, we're all flawed human beings. And, And we need to learn to love each other and we'll never learn to love each other until we come to understand how much we need forgiveness in our own lives only the humble you see only the humble will eat at the table of grace and only the forgiven will know how to forgive let us pray Lord forgive us Forgive us for learning how to hate out of our sense of what is right. Help us to hold true to what is right, but also see ourselves in need of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgive us, Lord. Amen.